today, as we take a break from Romans and our uh, series there, before we go into a couple Advent messages next couple weeks, I've been thinking about what I felt like the congregation need to hear the past few weeks. So uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the righteousness, uh, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Last week, we talked about focusing on the good things of God. And today, uh, we're going to have a message. It's really more of a sharing. I just called it Spontaneous Jesus Testimonies. And so in some ways, this is not a a formal sermon where we're going to go through one passage. It's more just some reflections. There's, um, I'm going to tell uh, some testimony stories. Um, but if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is not a passage we're going to go through in any kind of depth, but it is going to give you a, a sense for what, uh, where we're going today. And in Matthew chapter 4, this is a very familiar passage in verse 18 through 22. This is the calling of the first disciples by Jesus. Now, Uh, When he calls these disciples to himself, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, this is not the first time that they had met Jesus. Uh, They would have seen him around uh, Capernaum and and the wider Galilee area, so it's not like, hey, who's this guy? He walks by, now we're going to change our lives. They would have known who he was and probably interacted with him uh, before, but this is the first time that he calls the disciples to himself. And I want you to notice the spontaneous nature, the spiritual dynamic of the disciples were being called into something they were not prepared for. And so just kind of notice that uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. By the way, these fishermen, James and John, John were probably rich because um, under Zebedee, certainly had money. Um, And so they were mending their nets, and it says in verse 22, immediately they left the boat, and their father, and followed him. Now, I want you to keep your eyes on this passage. Notice some of these um, directives, some of these verbs. Verse 19, Jesus is walking by, so he's moving. Verse 20, uh, verse 19, he says, follow me. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets. Skip on down to 22, immediately uh, James and John left the boat and their father and followed him. Walking by, follow me, immediately leaving your nets, immediately leaving the boat, and their father, and following Jesus. There's a sense in Christian discipleship of spontaneity, of something that you're not prepared for, and how critical that was to the calling to follow Jesus. Not just to believe, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you you, uh, were God. I believe that you fulfilled God's law. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again from the dead. We are to believe that. But they also, it was wrapped up in the sense of follow me. Not just believe me as Savior, but follow me as Lord. And so today, when we look at, uh, spend some time talking about the spontaneous Jesus testimonies, we're really just making one point uh, in this time. It's just one point. And that one point is this. If you 
are going to mature in your faith. If you're going to allow God to sanctify you in your faith. If you're going to become more like Jesus as his follower. Then you have to be prepared for Jesus to do spontaneous things in your life. If you want to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. It is inescapable. Any plain, honest reading at face value of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, will reveal that Jesus did spontaneous things in the life of his followers. And that was not extraordinary. It was just normal. And so that's the point we're going to explore. It's just one point today. Let me pray for our time. And um, we'll, we'll go into this. Father, um, I pray that we would have our eyes reopened to uh, the spontaneous nature of what it means to follow your son. May we leave behind the boredom, the lukewarmness, the stagnancy of our spiritual walks and step into the adventure, step into the dynamic of faith, step into moving forward, following him as Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that you would move us, you would stir us, you would make us feel uncomfortable, but we would know that this is good. We would know that this is what we're looking for, and this is what we need, because this is what it means to be alive spiritually. This is what it means to to be a follower. And so um, help us to move towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're going to mature in your Christian faith, then you have to be prepared for Jesus to to do spontaneous things in your life. Every one of us wants a dynamic faith. Every one of us wants to be able to live uh, through sacrificial love. Every one of us wants to have an enduring hope. And yet, for many of us who have been around in the Christian faith or the church for any period of time, have you noticed that there's a disconnect between what was happening in the Gospels and the, the disciples' experience in following Jesus, on one hand, this dynamic faith, this uh, sacrificial love, this enduring hope, and they're being asked and called into. Have you noticed there's a difference between what's on the page? And oftentimes, our normal experience as Christians, or even in the church. In fact, as someone who has grown up in the church, I can tell you, too many years of my life were spent where I would characterize myself as a believer who believed the right things to go to heaven, number one, but number two, lived too much of my life in this middle gray space of being spiritually stagnant, being lukewarm-ish, um, and kind of being bored. Kind of being bored. I don't know if you can relate. I, I want to read to you a passage from... Um, I've written two books. My goal is to give them to the publisher at the end of January. Uh, and they're going to be each be about 200 pages long on the future of the church in the post-Christian age and the future of what it means to be human from a Christian perspective. I'm going to read to you a passage from one of these books. I literally have been working, I gave it to you like a year and a half ago. I have literally spent the past year and a half, on average, spending 10 hours a week over the past year and a half to revise them. So I think um, this is, I'm going to show you one of the revisions from one of the books under this topic of where we come to a place of being spiritually stagnant. Um, I wrote this, a certain level, a certain level of predictability can be good 
in the Christian faith. We do not want chaos in the church, 1 Corinthians 14. But when predictability no longer serves to anchor our faith, but instead dulls it, we lose the dynamic experience of following Jesus by faith. We generally want people to have a comfortable and successful experience as Christians. I've been conditioned to like a faith that is based on safety and the known over the idea that I am not in control of where God wants to take me. When I come across people who are able to take greater steps of faith than me, I find myself liking to read their books and admire them from afar without having to be accountable to their example. When called upon to personally sacrifice in a way that is beyond my norm, I like to know well in advance so I can prepare. Often, I wonder if even my best attempts at being courageous and surrendering my life to God would have translated to me quickly sinking underwater if asked to truly get out of the boat and walk towards Jesus. I wonder how many of us can relate to that. Uh, the, The church has done you guys a disservice, the church in general, for a lot of us. And I'll tell you how, is what we've generally tended to do uh, is tell you that as a Christian, there are certain threats that uh, you need to be aware of to your Christian faith. There are certain threats in the church. Examples, there is a threat of false teaching and false teachers. You're aware of that. We see that in the Old Testament. We see in the New Testament. That's obvious. That's legit. You want to stay away from that. But we have said that's a threat, false teaching or false teachers. Number two, we have said the threat to your Christian faith is uh, unrepentant sin in your life. That's true. Jesus wouldn't have went to the cross. He wouldn't have come into this world, wouldn't have risen from the dead, had sin not killed our spirit and damned us to hell. True. False teaching, sin. We have also said, you know, there's a big threat to the church, which is a sense of disunity in the church, right? Those kind of things, false teaching, unrepentant sin that's rampant throughout a congregation, and uh, disunity in church, that can wreck a church. But one of the things that we don't often talk about is a fourth area that's a tremendous threat to your spiritual walk. And that is spending a long season of your life in a place where your spiritual walk would be characterized as boredom. As feeling kind of lukewarm about things of God. And there's real no lack of movement. You can look back year after year after year and you're pretty much in the same place spiritually. That should not be the case. And that was not the experience of the New Testament. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus was a polarizing figure. We like to you know, think about him as this oh, cute little baby in the manger during this, this season. Or we think about him as Easter, and you, you know, he sees these paintings of a, uh, of a Caucasian man with blue eyes, and it's kind of fuzzy, and you know, he's kind of, and it's just very sweet. And, but you very rarely see Jesus depicted as, I have come into your life to shake things up, follow me, I'm going to change and rock your world. What you thought you knew, you're not going to know, and that's normative. Uh, We think that's radical, but for the disciples, that was just called Tuesday morning or Thursday night or Saturday afternoon. We think that's radical, but that was normal for them. And so what we've done is we've generally in our age here in the West, we've done church in a way to where when you come to church and you're part of it, especially in a place like Southern California, We have conditioned you as shepherds to expect and experience at church 
that is marked by the following words. Predictability, safety, comfort. I come so the church can serve my needs and that I can passively sit. Now, I understand, maybe some of us might be going through a traumatic experience and, and, and need of healing and just comfort and stuff, so we're not negating that. But too much of the church has been like that, has it not? Now, that might be good to attract a crowd at a church, but it's not necessarily good for making disciples of Jesus Christ. Any honest reading of the Gospels will reveal that. That was not their normative experience. In fact, if you're, if you're honest, if you and I are honest, we were to actually look at the Gospels and say, what was, what was their normative experience? Peter, Paul, James, John, all these guys. Um, I think that it's fair to say that when you look at all the Gospels, with the exception, with the one exception of Jesus turning to the disciples several times over his three-year public ministry and saying to them, I'm going to be delivered up, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise again. He said that several times to them, but with the exception of that, you could make the argument, truthfully, that almost every other experience the disciples had with Jesus resulted in them saying the following. Huh? What? I didn't know that. Oh, I messed up on that one. Oh, no, not this again. Oh, that was so much better than I thought it could have been or imagined. And the opposite of what they thought was going to happen when he went to the cross and his resurrection was a shock. Do I exaggerate or is that the truth? These men who were following him around for three years were literally off balance almost in every account. How could we possibly think that what should be normative for the Christian faith is the most comfortable experience? And so, um, I remember when I was in my late 20s, uh, you know, I, 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 had, I, I had gotten offered pastoral positions at about eight different churches when I graduated seminary. And I had decided not to do that. I decided to get a, uh, like a job as a substitute teacher to do that after I'd had, you know, a BA and two master's degrees. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to this one church in Los Angeles I'm going to leave everything, everyone I know, everything I've known, I'm going to drop it. I'm going to go be a volunteer, like not volunteer. I'm going to be um, someone who's a regular lay person to serve. And I'm going to do that for a couple years because there's stuff I can learn there. And I remember sitting in the senior pastor's, I was about 29 at the time, senior pastor's study. And um, he said, why are you at this church? Why did you drop everything? And I just said to him, the reason why I'm here is because as far as I can see, um, this church has a big enough vision that requires God. And I said to him, the reason why I'm here is because I want to be challenged. I'm here because um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And that excites me. I don't want plan predictability year after year. I want something that's trying to reach for the stars. And I think I found it here. And that is why I'm here. And I think that decision changed the trajectory of my ministry. If you look at the disciples, I'll give examples. Following Jesus was marked by surprise, change, challenge, learning new things, 
having a sense of awe, asking questions, and being shocked. Examples. In Matthew chapter 4, when it, when it came to following Jesus, let's go on to the next slide, actually. Um, when it came to following Jesus, uh, Matthew chapter 4, uh, like we were saying, Jesus walks by the Sea of Galilee, Peter and Andrew. He says, follow me, uh, I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately dropped their nets, followed him. They immediately did that. That was what was called upon for them. In Mark chapter 10, second example of what it meant to spontaneously follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus encounters a rich young ruler. He was called a rich young ruler because he was probably a synagogue ruler, not like a king. And uh, this ruler comes up to Jesus and says, you know, I've kept the law since I was a child. What else do I need to do? And Jesus says what? In Mark chapter 10, he says, one thing you lack. So all you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler's response was what? Um, It says he left Jesus saddened because he had many possessions. But Jesus just put him on the spot there to follow him, to give it up. In Luke chapter 19, you have uh, Jesus in Jericho. And there's a man named Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, it says. And Zacchaeus, it says, was a short man. He saw Jesus coming along down the road. He ran up ahead, it says in Luke 19, went up a sycamore tree. And he's looking at Jesus from above. Jesus walks by and he says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house for salvation has come to your home. Jesus goes to stay with Zacchaeus. And at Zacchaeus' home, it was Zacchaeus' faith in Jesus and Jesus' Uh, giving him salvation, that Zacchaeus then turns to Jesus and he says, you know, basically as a result of you coming into my life, Lord, I am going to give half my possessions to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone, I will pay them back four times. And, um, and that was his response. The disciples dropping their nets. The rich young ruler being told to drop everything and follow him. Zacchaeus voluntarily saying, I'm going to give this all up because, you know, you saw me and and you've come to my home. Spontaneous. These things were not planned. Following Jesus was not a planned event. It's something that just happened. Why am I so reticent to call people to follow Jesus on the spot? That's not what I see in the Gospels. Is it you? Did Jesus prepare the young ruler? Did he prepare Zacchaeus? Did he prepare? No, he didn't. He said, this is what God is doing. Salvation has come today. Will you yield your life to Christ? What about ministry? So, uh, you know, disciples come. They start following Jesus. What did it look like to follow Jesus spontaneously? Luke chapter 9. They're uh, in an area called Bethsaida. And there's 5,000 men, it says, probably more when you count women and children. Just as they only count the men, the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe 15,000, 20,000 people, scholars think. And um, the disciples, it says, went to Jesus in Luke chapter 9 and said, Jesus, look at this huge crowd. We're in a desolate place. Send them away so they can get shelter and food for the night. What does Jesus say? Yeah, I'll handle it. No, he, said, he turns to them and he says, on the spot, you give them something to eat. And he turns it back on them. And they're like, what? You know, so they find these five loaves and two fish from a kid. They give it to Jesus. He blesses it. He feeds them. Twelve baskets full of bread left over. But he turned to them spontaneously. And he just said, no, I'm not going to solve this. You give them something to eat. And because Jesus knew that was right for their faith. Oh, that's what it was like to follow Jesus in ministry. Jesus also 
offered spontaneous questions to the disciples as he followed them. Matthew chapter 16, the disciples are sitting there. And he starts, you know, going around, well, who do you, who do you say that I am? Um, and some disciples say, well, some say you're the prophet. Some say that you're Elijah. And then he turns to Peter and says, who do you say I am? And he calls Peter out in front of the disciples. Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says what? He says, you are the Christ. You are the Lord. Jesus affirms that it was God who revealed that to him, not uh, flesh and blood. But Jesus put Peter on the spot. Who do you say I am in front of others? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus not only gave them uh, spontaneous moments in ministry, not just in terms of questions, but his teaching was mind-blowingly different from what they expected. In Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says over and over again, you have heard it said. You've heard it said by the Pharisees and their traditions. You keep hearing, you've heard this said, what they're saying, but I say to you, Truly, truly, I say to you, forget what they said. I'm telling you what's up. John chapter 3, a teaching again. The Nicodemus, a high-ranking Pharisee, comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want to get caught talking to Jesus. And he says, um, how, mu- how must a man be, be saved? And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, he comes to Jesus and he starts asking him these questions. And Jesus says, if you're going to be saved, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, well, how can a man enter a woman's womb, his mother's womb, for the second time? Jesus says, if you're not born by water and spirit, you cannot see God. Following Jesus was a spontaneous call. Doing ministry with Jesus was a spontaneous um, calling out to do ministry. Following Jesus was being put on the spot, asked questions about who you think Jesus is. Following Jesus was receiving this teaching that put upside down what these disciples thought they knew. And so what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this in the 21st century? And if you're here... And uh, maybe some of you, you know, you're serving, you're reading the word, you're praying, you're obeying the Lord, and there's all this fruit in your life, and that is something we celebrate as believers, if that's you. For others of us, you might be here and you're like, wow, I've really been stagnant, Pastor Chris. It's really been, I, I don't, you know, I'm not in a place where there's a lot of spiritual fruit. The answer is that you have to, Embrace the spontaneity of Jesus in your life. As he speaks to you in his word, as he brings into your life circumstances that you know are of the kingdom of God. The measure of Christian maturity is not necessarily how much ministry experience you have. That's great and all, but that's not the best measure of Christian maturity. The best measure of Christian maturity is not how much of the Bible that you know, how much theology you know. That's great, but that's not actually the greatest measure of spiritual maturity. It's not your gifting or your talent. It's not your influence. Those things count, but the best definition of Christian maturity is this. How long from the time God speaks a word into your life through his word does it take you to obey? See, Christian maturity is really about the closing the gap time between when God speaks a word into your life 
and how long it takes you to obey that word. Anyone who's a parent with children will agree that no parent looks at their child and says, I am going to judge your character maturity by how well you play the piano, by what kind of good grades that you got in school, by how far you can hit a ball you know, with a bat or put a, a, a ball through a middle ring. No parent does that. What we do is we measure the child's maturity. How are you listening to what I'm saying as a parent? And how long is it taking you to obey what I'm telling you? And those children, they may not get the best grades. They may not be the greatest in sports. They may not be the most popular in school. But the children who are able to say, yes, mom, yes, dad, I obey in, in obedience to Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents for this pleases the Lord and it will go well with you. We call them mature. Same thing with our spiritual faith. When God speaks a word into your life, how long does it take to obey? See, some of us, you know, that spontaneity of hearing God's word, God speaks, and God has to speak sentences. Or others of us, maybe chapters of a book. Others of us, he has to write entire novels into our lives before we obey. And part of recapturing and escaping from the land of boredom, lukewarmness, and, and not moving anymore is to close the gap time between when God speaks and how long it takes us to obey. So, this message is called, you know, um, Testimonies of a Spontaneous Jesus. And I'm going to share some testimonies here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go th- through these. I'll try not to take too much time. But I want to share with you because what God has done in my life, how I've tried to obey him in a spontaneous way, in the spontaneous work he has done, whether it's through the word or what I saw him doing. Why? It's because at this church, it is very important for us that as we make disciples of Jesus Christ, we define that as, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul said that to the Philippian church. He said that to the uh, church at Corinth. Um, He says that elsewhere, as well as the others. And so you want to be asking yourself the question, as Pastor Chris shares some of these real-life ministry stories with me right now, it's not about him. It's about him saying to me, follow me as I follow Christ. All this is that I'm about to share with you is several examples of how I've attempted, failingly at times, to follow Jesus. You're going to see the struggle. You're going to see the victory. You're going to see the failure. And hopefully you find a little bit of yourself. The point, though, is to say that spontaneousness of what Jesus does in our lives is critical to getting out of the middle space of boredom, non-movement, and lukewarm faith. Story number one. Uh, when, I, when I graduate college, I want to be a journalist. I want to be the first Asian American uh, talk show host. That, that's what I wanted. Not like this crazy one with people throwing chairs and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, to interview political figures, economic figures all over the world. You know, I, that's why I didn't see any examples like that, but I wanted to do that. That was what I People had um, heroes like, that went by the names of Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and Michael Jordan. My heroes were, um, you know, Ted Koppel, Peter Jennings, Sam Donaldson, George Will. These are all nerdy journalist types from the 80s, right? You don't even know who they are. Um, but that's what I wanted to do, right? So one went off and became a, uh, got a journalism degree. And um, I didn't know what to do with my life after that uh, because I realized that really wasn't for me. It's, it's actually really hard on your personal life. So I went out and got a business graduate degree for, ne- for two years. I was serving in the church. 
And then、uh, I got a job as a coffee bean merchandiser. Okay, I had a BA and a master's degree, and I, and I was serving at my church. I go, that's really what I, you know, I really、uh, want to do. And I got jo- offered a job at AT and T as a consultant. There was like a hundred people going for this job, and they offered it to me on a Friday, and I told them no on a Monday. My parents flipped out, right? And so.、Um, I was working as a coffee bean merchandiser, merchandising these coffee machines in Palos Verdes and the South Bay mostly. And I remember just sitting there at the JACC、um, Plaza in the Artani Plaza in Jaytown in December. And my friend, I was at a Christmas concert. My friend just goes, "Hey, have you thought about going to ministry?" I never had thought that before. So I went home that night and I said, "Okay, here's Lord. Do not do what I did. This is not the way to live your Christian faith. I did this one time. Don't copy this." But I went home that night and I said, "Lord, all right, I didn't think about that. But what of what if I became a pastor? I will commit the rest of my life to this." My friend suggested tonight. I went down on my knees that night and I said, "I'll count him as one. You bring forward two more people, and I will change everything about my life to go in that direction." Okay, that was、uh, December of 1995, and、uh, I, I was at Christmas and、um, so, uh, dinner, and I was asked to say prayer. Someone came up to me and says, "I think you should go to seminary." Like he never said that to me before. He'd known me for like 25 years. I said, "How did you know that?" He goes, "I don't know. I just felt I should say it to him." And he walked away.、Um, a couple weeks later, another pastor wanted to meet with me for lunch, and he said, "Me and another pastor were talking. We think you should go to seminary." I go, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. I, I, how did you know that?" So that was in January of 1996. I changed my whole life immediately, and two months later, I was going to seminary full time. I got a loan. I made the deadline. The deadline was in like a week after I made that decision. I changed my entire life.、Uh, I tell people, don't live your life with that kind of. Oh, I saw this sign. Now that God wants me to do all this, I did it once. But I think the reason why God answered that in such a dramatic way is because He knew that if He did, I would immediately obey. And see, there's this sense that when Jesus does something spontaneous in your life. How long does it take you to obey? What is the gap time? I changed my entire life, and I never looked back. I said, "Lord, if you put me in this direction, I'll go, and I won't look back." And I never did. It was, you know,、uh, almost thirty years ago. Second story: Not only、um, does Jesus ask you to follow Him in spontaneous ways, but secondly, He can often put you in situations where you are required to give、uh, generously, spontaneously, to give spontaneously, generously. Uh, when I pastored my first church in downtown Long Beach for ten years, from 2004 to 2013,、uh, there was a, an instance where a person、um, was staying at their relative's home, and there was like 15 people there. There, they spent the night. One of their own relatives stole their laptop. Came back to us. They had done all this work on their laptop, and so、uh, myself and about a half dozen other people said, "You know what? This is your whole livelihood on this laptop." So we got together. And then one week we said, "Okay, it's going to take about twelve hundred dollars to to replace this laptop, but we're going to restore this person to better than where they were, like restitution, right? Restore them to better." So we go, "We're going to raise fifteen hundred dollars." So within one week, about seven of us raised fifteen hundred dollars. Me and Lorraine gave a hundred dollars. We felt good about that.、Uh, we gave that to the person that got a new laptop. I was not the one collecting the money, but the person who collected the money was this one guy. He owned his own business, and I. And he said to me, "You know, I want to let you know, this this other person gave eight hundred bucks, and I thought that eight hundred bucks would come from this rich couple. It was not. You know who gave the eight hundred bucks? It was a guy 
at our church who was working full-time at a convenience store. And you think about what $800 means to someone working full-time as, you know, behind a cash register at a convenience store. He just gave it. Lorraine and I didn't feel so good about our $100 after that. <laughs> um, but that inspired me to be more generous in the future. I remember uh, another quick story on this. After I left my first church, uh, because we went to, to go move our ministry to another city and everything was cool there, um, there we, we were really poor. Okay? I mean, we went into massive debt because I didn't have a job. I worked as a tra- traveling evangelist from 2013 to 2014. I probably spoke 50 times in that one year for different churches, different retreats. But we were in massive debt. We had to pay out of pocket for our own health insurance and so forth and so on. And uh, we were so poor. And then our, our water heater broke on us. Okay? We didn't have money to replace that. So for one month, we had no hot water at our house. And this was in the winter. I took cold showers. We all took cold showers for one month. And then we, it finally dawned on me, what am I doing? I should just boil the water you know, and just scoop it over my head. What am I doing? And uh, you can do that when you're a young man. I, I, would never, I can't do that now. You know, I'd probably die if I took cold showers for a month. But, um, but this, this, one of the people that I knew, he showed up and he goes, um, you know, I, I need $300 right now. I, I can't pay the rent. It's due like yesterday. Now, at the time, Lorraine and I had like $1,000 to our name, to our name. And within 20 minutes of this person showing up, I just go, let's go. I went to the ATM machine. I gave them $300 worth of cash. And, you know, like we had like three kids at the time. And so I just got, I'm going to trust the Lord, okay? The next day, I went to the mail, and I opened up my mail, and there was a check that was written to me for $300. And what happened was I had spoken at a youth camp three months previously. One of the parents of the high schoolers that, you know, was at the camp wanted to bless me. So they talked to the church secretary to have and gave the church money and the church wrote me a check. But that decision was made weeks before I even gave the $300. The very next day, God gave me that $300 back. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. God has always provided for our family, even when we were down to less than $1,000 to our name. And that's not when we're like 21 years old, right? Um, but that taught me something about the Lord spontaneously puts a need in front of you that you just feel is from the Lord, obey. And he had already taken care of it without me knowing, weeks before, right? Spontaneous following, spontaneous generosity. Another story, uh, Jesus works spontaneously to, for you to express Uncomfortable compassion. Uncomfortable compassion. Spontaneously. You might be called upon by Jesus to be put in situations where you are spontaneously have to be compassionate in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, uh, you, you and I know, uh, I've, I've shared this before, Lorraine used to work for the Union Rescue Mission on Skid Row. She worked there for about five-ish years. And um, going back from about 2004 to, I don't know, 2000. 16, within that 12-year period, from 2004 to 2016, um, my previous church, and actually the ministry I was part of before my previous church in downtown Long Beach, we did skid row foot washing. We used to go down there. We probably did about 10 times in that 12-year period. And we would go down there during uh, Easter or, or Thanksgiving. Uh, people right on the most notorious street, uh, San Julian, which is right behind the mission, 
And we would partner with the mission during their Thanksgiving and Easter outreaches, and we would offer skid row foot washing, you know, gloves um, and everything, and just people would come. We'd wash their feet, powder them. I'm Jay knows. I'm, we used to go do that for years. And um, one year we did that with City Bible Church early on, and some of you were there. And there was a w- young woman named Tiffany who used to go to this church, and then she moved away to Pomona, got married, had a kid. And uh, we said, hey, we're going to do skid row foot washing during the, the Union Rescue Mission's Thanksgiving outreach. It's in their parking lot. You know, it's gated. There's security. But, you know, people just walking off the street. Tiffany comes up to me and she goes, I'm going to go. But I want you to know, I hate feet. I hate the look of them. I hate the smell of them. But I'm going to go because I think God wants me to go. I said, that's great. That's great. Let's go. So we all went down there. Washing feet. And there was a, a, a moment, and we were there for like five, six hours, right? There was a moment where, you know, they're letting people in the front gate, and there's this woman that appeared. She's probably about 5'2", 70 pounds at best, emaciated, shaking. She had no shoes. She was walking barefoot off the street. I looked at her feet because I was drawn to that. They were brown and green and scaly. Now, I'm no podiatrist. But if I was, I would imagine my recommendation would be just to amputate and start over with prosthetics. And so I saw her, and she was about where the mirror was, walking in the gate. And then I looked over at Tiffany, and she was just having a joyous conversation with one of her friends. She had her back turned, you know, she was washing one's feet. And so I walked directly towards that woman, and I met her at the entrance. And I said, hello, ma'am. Um, would you like to have your feet washed? And she's like, yes, yes, that would be wonderful. And then I looked over, and I saw Tiffany. And I turned to the woman, and I said, see that woman over there laughing and talking? I want you to walk up to her and ask her to wash your feet. And she goes, oh, okay. So she walked over, and then I just backed off. You know, I just wanted to see what would happen between this woman who had the worst feet I'd ever seen at Skid Row and the woman who hated feet. And I saw her walking towards Tiffany. And Tiffany just she had no idea. She's laughing and talking to her friend. And, and she, she taps Tiffany on the shoulder. Tiffany turns around, and I couldn't hear what they were saying. They were talking. Then Tiffany went over. She put the woman on the chair. She spent 10 minutes with her, washing her feet, powdering her feet, giving her new socks, praying for her. Didn't skip a beat. And I'm just watching this all from afar, right? And when Tiffany was done, I went up to Tiffany. I said, I want you to know God is proud of you, and so am I. That was probably the best thing you've done at this church, what happened those past 10 minutes, all right? God does things to put you in positions of uncomfortable compassion. And, um, and maybe your pastor will too, so <laughs> we'll see. All right, next story. Uh, keep moving on. Uh, God puts you in positions even for spontaneous failure. Spontaneous failure. Uh, when I graduated seminary, I went down on a missions trip to Ensenada with 200 people from this church I was going to in Los Angeles. Uh, we went down during Labor Day weekend to Ensenada. It was a big trip that was planned. I got a call from one of the pastors before the trip, and he said, hey, you know what? Um, we were talking as a leadership team. We want you to lead the men's soccer team outreach in Ensenada. You'll be riding in a van, playing pickup games with people off the street, whatever. It's just kind of this apostolic ministry. You know, just you don't know what happens. I said, sure, no, no problem. And that made total sense to me, you guys. For me to be leading the soccer ministry men's team, because I played AYSO soccer till I was in fourth grade. 
So of course, I should be leading the men's soccer ministry team. But I said, okay, yeah, I'm game. All right. So I, I remember I talked to a pastor. I need some soccer drills. I haven't done this since I was a kid. So we, it was a joke. We're practicing for, for the trip. We go down there. And the first night that we're there, we have this meeting of 200 people. <coughs> Our contact in Ensenada, he walks up to me. There's some guy in Ensenada. He goes, I am so, you're leading the men's soccer team, right? I go, yeah. He goes, I'm so glad you brought your team with you. Because when I heard you were bringing your soccer team, what I did is I arranged soccer matches between you guys and our club teams down here in Mexico in the stadium. I'm so happy. You'll have multiple games tomorrow. And, you know, I'm just like dying, right? So we go out there. We get slaughtered. I remember five minutes into the first game, they scored like two or three goals on us. (laughs) And as one one of their strikers was running past me, he just goes, you guys know how to play soccer? And they just ran away, right? And in that, but I did score a goal in that game. I did score a goal. Uh, but we got slaughtered. And yes, thank you. But, um, but the point, is, the point is, is, that, is that after the game, the ministry team went to another site. I just hopped in a van. I wanted to go see what was happening. They were doing a drama. The medical team and the drama team was at a different site. We walked in the door into a room this size, and they were finishing up the drama. And as, you know, there's a few minutes left. I was just sitting in the back the lead elder came up to me um, and he, he put his hands on my shoulder and he just said, turned to me and looked me in the eye and goes, you have been chosen to give a gospel presentation at the end of this drama, which was ending in like three minutes, right? <laughs> and he goes, just don't speak too fast. You're going to have to do it with translation, but you're up in three minutes, okay? I just ran to the bathroom. I was like, oh God, help me, help me. God, I'm not even ready. I went up there and the whole ministry had been set up for this moment to, for someone to share the gospel, lead them to Christ. And it was the worst gospel presentation I've ever given in my life. I was fumbling around. I didn't know what I was saying. I gave this weak altar call at the end. And of all these people, this one kid who's probably 11, you know, raised his hands to respond. I felt defeated. I felt I had let everyone down. It was terrible. And I, you know, you know, you know when it, it stinks, right? And, um, but there was two things I learned from that. That spontaneous moment of failure. Number one. I had to ask myself, was that worth it? Was it worth it for that one kid to respond, assuming that was a genuine response? And I said yes. The one sheep, the one lost coin, the, the prodigal son, is, that, is it worth it for you? Is it worth it for you if in reality your presence here at City Bible Church was not about this church growing into a mega church with hundreds and thousands of people? What if our whole mission here in Cerritos or in downtown LA was about reaching the righteous few that God had for Abraham to go into Sodom? What if it was about the one lost coin, the sheep, and the, and, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the lamb, right? Or the, the prodigal son. Would that be enough for you? Right? And so I said yes, and that guided the rest of my ministry from that failure. I said, yeah, it was worth it for that kid for me to look stupid up there. And number two, I realized, I said, never again am I going to allow myself to be in a position where if I get called upon on the spot, I will not... I will do a lame gospel presentation. I'm never going to let that happen to me again. 2 Timothy 4, be ready in season and out of season to preach the gospel. And from that day forward, I made sure I was ready. And sometimes the best things that God has to teach you come from your ministry failures, and maybe they're public. I never, that was most power, one of the most powerful lessons I learned in my entire ministry career was from failure, a spontaneous failure. Um, just two more quick things, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, spontaneous failure, spontaneous change. I, I was one time uh, asked to be a speaker at a family retreat. 
I went up there. It was like in, in you know the mountains or whatever. And um, I always ask to do a Q&A session when I ask, get asked to be speaker at a retreat because I want to interact with the people. And so I was speaking. I, we had this afternoon session. It was Q&A. The questions from the congregation that were there at the camp setting, pretty normal. Why does God allow evil? Um, why is Jesus the only way? I mean, those are tough. You know, I mean, those are deep questions, but they're fairly common. The last question of that session is this guy raises his hand and he goes, uh, Pastor, what do you have to say to people who are bored in their faith, who are stagnant in their faith. Can you give us any advice for that? Normally, when I get asked that question, I give a very pastoral answer. I say, oh, well, you should pray and, you know, read the Bible. I would normally say that, but for some reason, when he said that, it got under my skin. And so I turned back to him in front of everyone. I said, oh, you're bored. I said, well, see, the way to get unbored in the Christian faith, it's really simple, actually. All you have to do is commit yourself to obeying today what you know God has already commanded you to do, but you haven't done it already. And that's the way to get on board. And then I just said the first thing that came to mind. I said, you know what? I'll give you an example. Um, I said, how many of you are unreconciled to another Christian right now? Uh, raise your hand. And all these hands went up. I said, I'll be honest with you. I'm your speaker. I, there's a guy I know in my mind. I'm unreconciled to him. He's a brother in Christ. We have not been reconciled for a year. The last time we saw each other, I slammed the door in his face. That's the last time we talked after one year. And then I turn to the crowd and I say, okay, here's the deal. We all know what Jesus says in Matthew 5, right? If you have a gift, bring it to the altar, but you know you're unreconciled. Your brother has something against you, Matthew 5. Leave your gift at the altar. Try and be reconciled if you can, and then come back and offer your, your gift. And so I said to them, all right, here's the deal. Um, I am willing at the end of the session, right now, I'm going to close in prayer. Pull out my phone, and I will attempt reconciliation with this brother. But I will only do it if one of you who raised your hands does it with me. If you don't do it, I'm not going to do it. If you do, one person, I'll do it. Let's close in prayer. I closed in prayer. I said, I'm going to stick around for five minutes, and then I'm going to free time. Okay? And I was just watching that clock. Four minutes. Three minutes. Two minutes. One minute. There was 30 seconds, and I was literally inching closer to the door as I was talking to someone, and I was 30 seconds, and this woman says, Pastor, I'll do it. And I was like, oh, praise God. And, and, but inside, I was so mad at this woman for putting me in this position because I knew nobody was, and see, in my mind, I was like, this is great. I'm going to look like a hero making this bold declaration in front of me, and what I'm going to do, they're not going to take me up on it. I will be able to escape without doing it, and my sin will get transferred to their account because I was willing, and they didn't do it. It's great. This woman foiled my plan. She comes for me. I said, okay, that's fine. Let's do it. I pull out my phone. I said, I'm going to call right now. And she said, she said, I'm unreconciled to my mother. I said, you call. I'll call. We'll talk about it later. I went into another room, and I called this guy. I got his voicemail. I was so happy. I left a voicemail, a one-minute voicemail. Hey, you know, I'm sorry about what happened for my part in it. Um, you know, I hope you're well. Don't feel like you got to call me back. Uh, but I hope, you know, I just wanted to reach out to you and say I'm sorry for whatever part I played in what happened. Three minutes later, he calls me back. We talked for 10 minutes. We reconciled. And actually, it was a good conversation until he said to me at one point, well, I still think I'm right and you're wrong. And then, I, you know, I, at that moment, I want to say, you know what? <laughs> I, why did I call you? <laughs> but I did. I said, yeah, no, I, I understand. I understand. So we prayed. He ended up becoming one of our largest financial donors 
to City Bible Church in the early years of this church, even though he, didn't, he wasn't part of this church after we could reconcile. Okay? And uh, you never know what God does spontaneously to ask you. I, if this was not, oh, I need time to pray about this. Oh, I'm not emotionally ready. I was like, no, I'm going to put myself out there. Let's just do it now. I'll just summon it. Okay? I'm just going to do it. I don't care. I'm just going to do it and see what happens. And sometimes God does that in a spontaneous way. Last story. Um, Jesus puts you in place of spontaneously following him, generosity, uncomfortable compassion, failure, change. And sometimes Jesus puts you in a position to do good work, a spontaneous good work for the saints. A spontaneous good work for the saints. We're having this church retreat in like a month and a half, right? I told Paul and Alice I would share this. Uh, I went up to Paul and Alice last week and said, hey, are you guys coming to the retreat? It's going to be so great, right? And, um, you know, we... We love Paul and Alice. Um, they're very dear. I, Friday was my birthday. Um, I walked in the door and Alice gives me this. She made this kind of happy birthday in honor of Pastor Chris. Spent a lot of time on it. Beautiful. Wish I could uh, read it all to you, but you can check it out later. I really appreciate that, Alice. And so uh, she handed that to me and I just said to them, you know what? I know you guys can't come to the retreat for various reasons. If we found a way to get you to the retreat, pick you up on Saturday morning, bring you back on Saturday night, would you come? You know, I won't ask you guys to leave the retreat, but if we found someone else who was not going to the retreat, period, to drive up, we'll make it work, would you come? And they said, yeah, that's, that's a real possibility, then we could come there. We would love for you guys to join us at the retreat on Saturday, if you're willing. And I just, when I had that conversation last week with them, I just said, you know what, this is a spontaneous moment, I'm going to solve this problem. Let me do what I can to immediately respond to this right now. It was a spontaneous opportunity to, to enter into the good work of God for the saints. In closing, I want you guys to pray and ask Jesus to spontaneously, spontaneously work in your life. I want you to pray for that. Number two, I want you to see yourself as a spontaneous servant who obeys the Lord, not someone who just serves according to a schedule but a spontaneous, obedient servant. Number three, I want you to be commit to embracing whatever outcome God has for you as you follow him and the spontaneous work in your life. Let's pray together. Fathers, we close our time, uh, your spontaneous work in our life. We need that. We need that, Lord, because that is how you did it. And that is perhaps what we've gotten away from. And we're suffering. We're spiritually sick. And we're stuck. And I pray that every one of us would recapture the wonder, the awe, the, the godly fear, and the fruit, and the joy, and the life that comes when we allow you through, our, through your invitation and our obedience to that, to do a spontaneous work in our lives, to get us out of the middle space of faith, Lord. So we thank you, God. Pray you continue to shape City Bible Church as a church that is solid, believing in a Jesus that is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, but at the same time following him unto the unknown but to the place God would have us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.